the original instructions when we start out Friday night was simply to be with the in-breath and the out-breath. And every time we were taken away to come back, the coming back not being treated as a fault, but actually the practice itself, which is to say, if you didn't need to come back for the breath, you wouldn't need to be here. You would have this laser-like mind and just say, just look at your stuff and you'd burn right through it. That would be the end of it. Because it wouldn't stand up to, to real understanding. So many of our problems would just wouldn't stand up to deep understanding, deep seeing. And what, what might can that lead to? Let's say doing a practice of taking the breathing and making the breathing conscious over and over again, over an extended period of time. It can be a long period of time, much longer than 10 days. Is that gradually what tends to happen, I'm speaking in generalities, but uh, it, what tends to happen is that the, of course you become, by definition, you're more concentrated there are fewer gaps in your ability to attend to the breath, more continuous. And when you do leave the breath, it's as if an alarm goes off and you almost immediately know that you're not with the breathing and then you ease back. Whereas, you know, without much practice, the big gaps in our attention, um, we miss the breath, we lose the breath a lot. Sometimes we're, when we leave, we're gone for long periods of time without realizing it. And then suddenly we realize that not only we can't, can't we find the breath, but we don't even know where our nostrils are. <laughs> so we go to Interface, which is in Massachusetts, take a workshop on how to find your nostrils. And what comes along with that is an increase in uh, the concentration is another way of saying that the mind becomes uh, much more serene, more joyful, refreshed. And you can feel dramatic effects in the mind and in the body. That is, the, as the mind becomes, as the breath becomes smoother, more refined, more serene, more peaceful. It brings the body along with it. It brings the mind along with it. And so that you might find, for example, at a certain point, the body becoming quite transparent and that you can feel currents of breath, very subtle breath sensations throughout the entire body. Now we tried to prompt that. We, had a culti- we cultivated it a bit, the guided meditation the other day. We just took the torso. And that can help the process along. But quite naturally, even without guided meditations like that, 
as the samadhi practice deepens, uh, the body opens itself up to us and we can experience it on a much more subtle level and that includes the breath which is oxygenating and deoxygenating all the cells all the time. We feel how the, the life of the breath infuses the entire body. Moreover, uh, mindfulness occupies the whole body. That's really the important point. We, you can learn, gradually, you can fill the body up with awareness. Well, with that comes, of course, a great peace, stillness, And very often, a natural outcome is a kind of bliss. Some of you have already begun to taste some of that. The bliss can be quite extraordinary, a joy. It's very active, very stimulating. It's not something you'd want to, despite what you might think in hearing it, it's not something, a state you'd want to be in forever. You really can get quite fed up with bliss. <laughs> I know you take some right now, but <laughs> sight unseen, no conditions. But after a while, you get kind of fed up with it. Okay, uh, you know, 10 hours of bliss. <laughs> <laughs> and then it has a need to express itself very often, compulsively. And I did a month-long retreat two summers ago, and I was, uh, I was alone, more or less. And I was working with a Thai teacher, and I was mainly just sitting and walking and would see him once a, once a day. And something like that came about, and I just was so inspired of just giving Dharma talks, but there was no one there. <laughs> I was looking for squirrels that would listen. He didn't want to listen. No one wanted to listen, and it just new ideas and new talks and connecting the Four Noble Truths with the Eight This and the Seventeen That. It was just, and all just pouring out until it was exhausting and I just, how do I get out of this? <laughs> it's another very high-grade form of suffering. High-class cl <laughs> high suffering. But we're in as low-class suffering. But if you can still be with the in-breath and the out-breath. See, that's another amazing aspect of this practice. It's hard to believe the profound outcome of such a simple operation, just breathing in and breathing out. You have to, I know you have to go on faith for quite a while, but the simplicity of, of, that, of the practice, that it's just an in-breath and an out-breath, is exactly its power. Because the problem is we've become and always have been, even in the Buddha's time, much too complicated. And so you need simple medicine for complexity. Instead, of, often what we're doing is generating even more complexity to try and cure complexity. How could that work? But what grows out of, this is all if we keep doing what we've been doing starting Friday, what can grow out of that, the bliss subsides, fortunately. And, you, and there's peace, real stillness and peace. And that 
you can stay in for long periods of time. You don't want to get rid of that. Now, in, in some levels of that stillness, you can, in a sense, rest in it. It's, uh, as you get good at it, and good at it simply means it's like anything else. What we're doing now is a skill that can be learned. And it's, it's rather new for all of us. But as you do it, more and more the time comes where you can drop into a space where the mind is very, very peaceful and all that's happening is awareness. It's not much awareness of, of much, sort of awareness of itself. When you come out of that state, the mind is incredibly fit to do what it has to do, in other words, for vipassana or insight work. Now, just to get ahead of ourselves, because the instructions this morning had to do with the beginnings of insight work. That has to do with seeing more deeply into our nature, investigating, looking carefully. And when you start to do that, you can't do that forever. And so it's not as if this practice of being with the breath in this exclusive way is kindergarten and we do it for, let's say, five or six days, and now we drop it and go on to the real thing, which is insight. It's not that way at all. It's like the, the right and the left hand working, the right and left arms and hands working together. You always need both of them. There's a, a time for the mind to drop the world in a sense. Because another way of looking at what we've been doing is we've been exchanging the world for just the breath. All of our concerns and preoccupations and interests, let it go and just breathe. It's a kind of renunciation, temporary. And it's very refreshing to give all that up and exchange it for something as simple as the breath. But when you're doing investigation, as more and more some of you are doing, there comes a time where you're, uh, you lose the freshness. Uh, you get tired of, let's say, seeing impermanence or examining some suffering very carefully. As, and that can be refreshing too, but it can get tiring. And then you, once you've developed this ability with the breath as an exclusive object, you can then drop into it and refresh your mind. Take as much, just like getting a good night's rest. If you have a good night's rest, no matter what you face during the day, you have a much better chance of doing it, doing it appropriately, effectively. And it's the same with this. So that if you, it's uh, like having a house. The, in the Thai forest tradition, They'll refer to, if you, if you have no samadhi, or very weak samadhi, everyone has some concentration. I mean, just to hold a glass of water requires some samadhi. If you had no samadhi, you couldn't get the, you know, you'd pick it up, it would just fall right out of your hands. And we all have rather fierce samadhi for certain things. Usually greed, hatred, and delusion. <laughs> <laughs> If there's, a, if there's a dollar to be made, we're very concentrated. New relationship, sex, good meal. If we had a tenth of that concentration, get into the graduate school of your choice, 
You know how concentrated you can get for all kinds of things. What if we had that for, for the breath? Can you imagine this place would just be luminescent by now with, <laughs> because of all of us? So eventually you develop a rhythm of uh, knowing when what's good for you is to just simply breathe and to let the cares of the world go and even your own inner workings. And then when you've had enough rest, just as if you've had a good night's rest, then you re-enter and you examine fear and you examine whatever comes up, anger and so forth, loneliness. And if you remember the instructions were if something became problematic and over and over pulled your attention away from the breath, then it would be fine to give that some attention. Do you recall that is, so then you're breathing in and breathing out, but you're now also including something that has pulled you away from the breath a lot, whatever that something is. Now that's the beginnings, where, uh, the beginnings of getting a taste of what was suggested this morning, where we open the field up. And it's not simply when something is problematic that we then allow ourselves to look at it, to give it some attention, some mindfulness, and then come back to the breath, which is primary. Okay, to get to those instructions. When the mind gets to a certain degree of, of calm, and uh, you can begin to do this work uh, before you have very, very deep samadhi, you can certainly begin to, to do what was suggested. Clearly, the more stable, the more calm, the more at peace the mind is, the easier it is to do this uh, free attention, you could call it, where if you recall the instructions, you're still with the breathing. The breathing is kind of like an anchor, keeping the mind from the attention from floating away. And now we're just totally open. We have no agenda. And what we're aware of is what knocks on our door. It's sort of, it's not that you choose what you're going to be attentive to. At first you may find yourself steering things a little and aiming. But more and more, as you develop this practice, it's the art of non-doing. It's learning how to totally not do anything, to just be yourself. To just be just what you are. Just sit th sitting there, breathing. If fear comes up, then that's the truth. There's fear. If hating fear comes up, then there's hating fear. And whatever. Uh, some of that ability to not calculate, and this is something we have to learn, it's not easy because we've had a lot of training in calculating. Our minds are very calculating. We're always using something to get somewhere else. And here, there's no somewhere else. It's just whatever is there is what you're attentive to. Some of you have had experience in various forms of psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. It's not exactly the same as free association, but there is, has, is, it's in the same family of just, it's hopeless, give up. Stop trying to make things come out a special way. 
and just let, just as we've been learning how to allow the breath to breathe itself, to do what it wants to do, to establish its own rhythm or lack of rhythm, the challenge becomes, can we do the very same thing with the mind? Can we allow the mind to just unfold? As you know, we have choices. We like certain things to come out and other things not to, and so there's a struggle. We're attached. To, we're attached to things being a certain way. And as a result, we're either pushing things away or grabbing onto them and trying to hold on. And yet, life is not that way. If it's time to, for something to leave, then it goes. And if you're trying to hurry something out the door and it's not time yet, it only stays longer. So you can see why there are many ways to use language for this, but you can see why surrender is not a bad one to describe it. What you're surrendering is sort of central headquarters, the ego that, uh, you know, all that effort to knock out Saddam Hussein's, remember him? (laughs) Are they still there making nuisance trouble? Only now, not not for for Iraqi people. I shouldn't have introduced that note. (laughs) I apologize. At any rate, the the military strategy was to, uh, in quotes, knock out the command and control. That is, in a sense, the brain of the military, the intelligence, which is telling everyone where to go and what to do and getting feedback and all of that. Well, what this is, in a sense, is very gentle voluntary decentralization of the whole process where you just sit there and of course the ego hates it, just hates it. It will try to take over, it will try to be egoless. But it can't do it. I mean it's going to run into a lot of frustration because it has preferences. But whatever it hears that you value, that's what it'll try to do. Oh, no choices? Okay. I won't make any choices. <laughs> and that's why sometimes, as an act of intelligence, as we begin to see that as the this, the instructions are very open and free. If you if you heard what was trying to be conveyed, that is, it's just whatever is there, whatever is most vivid. That's what you're aware of while breathing in and breathing out. And after a while, you can see that the, the beauty of that. And the awareness is like a naturalist observing the, the ocean or birds, just watching it all, just fully uh, developing the conscious breathing, which uh, keeps you centered, uh, minimizes forgetfulness, and enables us to be aware of the coming and going of everything. Okay, now, one of the things that can... to try to make this 
process a little bit more um, concrete so that it connects with your practice. What you're doing is following the breath as you've been doing all along since Friday. Only now, um, there are no boundaries in the sense of narrowing down the focus of attention so that you're primarily with the breathing. Whether you're at the nose or at the chest or the tummy or uh, the breath coursing through the whole body, uh, you're not doing that because you're with the breath in some form, whichever one you're drawn to, but now it's more comprehensive. The attention is all-inclusive. It's wide-angle lens, global. And when it's really happening, you don't have any rules as to what should be inside or what should be outside. Everything's welcome. Whatever turns up is part of the practice. Now that is, again, that's quite a training to undergo because we have strong preferences. We like some people at our party, but we don't want others there. Well, this is a big party. And everyone's allowed in. Drunks, uninvited. The police, whoever wants to come, come on in, you know, press here, it's whatever you want. Can you be that generous? After all, it's all you. They're all your little people. Where do you think they're coming from? Outer space? <laughs> These are our little people that are living inside, you know, they just, now they're crawling up from under rocks and <laughs> jumping out of trees because We've just sat there and now we have no agenda. It's an invitation for this. It's saying like, it's okay now. The coast is clear, come on out. (laughs) And that's exactly what starts to happen at first in a slow and measured way. And depending on you, because by and large, you're not asked to come in contact with more than you can handle. It's a gradual awakening. And little by little, uh, we learn this art and at first, of course you're not surrendering. Of course you're making choices. You know, you're not just sitting there and just totally, totally surrender to whatever turns up. You can feel effort and struggle and opinions and all the rest showing themselves. But, look, but that can be seen too. The beauty of mindfulness is that it is, it is empty, so it reflects whatever is happening including your attempt to sabotage this process or to not be able, not not even sabotage, to not be able to be so relaxed. So trusting, so open, so confident that, that whatever turns up is workable. The most horrible thought or deepest fear, it's workable. Now, how can we move in that direction? I'd like to just take a hypothetical time, piece of time out of, let's say, a a typical sitting that any one of us probably has had or will have. And themes that came up in the interviews a lot have to do with fear and anger, very common for all of us. Okay, let's say you're following your breath, breathing in and breathing out, breathing in and breathing out. Now in this second, in the instructions as we got them this morning, and fear arises. With these instructions, the breath of course is continuous. It's not that you have to decide that. 
That's the beauty of the breathing. It is always going on. All it is is we're using that, we're being conscious of the fact that it's always going on, and that helps us be with everything that's other than breath, in this case, fear. And so breathing in, I experience fear. Perhaps there's uh, a change in the way the heart is, perhaps the, uh, a certain knot, perhaps the, the stomach tightens up, the jaw goes a certain way, the eyes become hard, whatever, the, whatever it is for you, the content of the mind being something. which we call fear, all of those things. Okay, the instructions are, step number one is, while breathing in and breathing out, to know that that's what's happening. In other words, step number one is acknowledging, well, here's... Now, it's not the word fear. It's just all of those uh, psychophysiological events that when they happen, somehow we feel confident to use the word fear when we communicate with each other. So that is, so I'm using that word. But it's the isness of it. It's not any concept. It's the raw fear itself. It's just what's there. Including imaginings about what might happen to you. If I sit the sitting any longer, gangrene is going to set in. Okay. That's part of it. As unreal, we, so far we've never lost the yogi, to my knowledge. Thousands of years, not one yogi has been... That may not be true. I don't really know. I don't want to get sued. <laughs> now you get sued for anything now. Just to watch what you say. There may have been some yogis who got lost in the Himalayas somewhere. So the fear is still there, it's raging. The challenge becomes, can we place, can we meet it with mindfulness? Now the attitude is very important. That's the hardest thing to learn because uh, in so many of the interviews, the natural impulses, let's say if anger is there or fear, let's say we get angry at the anger. You know, I shouldn't be angry or I should and just totally caught in it. In rage you can't even hear what, you know, what any questions that are asked because you're caught up in some person that you're angry at or a boss or whatever it is. Or with fear, there's such a, we're afraid of it so much. We're so terrified of being frightened. Don't you just hate being afraid? Okay, but the attitude here is of friendliness. A, a rule of thumb, if you find it the way you're approaching any of the objects in meditation has any coerciveness, any force, or even violence in it. You know, it's not uh, a Patriot missile. You don't shoot down what, what's coming into your mind with the Patriot missile. This is different. Actually, it's something like this. The fear is coming out of out of, out of me, isn't it? And out of you. It's coming out of us. The fear is, is coming from us. The mindfulness is also us. The breath is also us. All you're doing is bringing all of that together, but mainly in the service right now of the fear. The fear is what needs to be taken care of because you're suffering because you're afraid. You're suffering because you're very angry. You're suffering because you feel very isolated or lonely. 
but it's all coming from us. And so it's like if you hurt your left hand, let's say you cut it, it's with the right hand, you wash it out, you put some, medicate it, and then you put a bandage on it. It's the same thing. The mindfulness is you, the conscious breath is you, the fear is you, and you're caring for it. And the caring means simply being with it, being aware of it, fully experiencing it. Again, if you recall, not from a distance, but more and more as you learn how to do this, the boundary of the subjective observer and what you're observing, in this case the fear, that falls away. There's no separation. It fuses. It's intimate. It's a, you, you go into the fear. You fully experience it, but awake. If you weren't awake, if there wasn't this mindfulness, then it would be just like what we always do. In other words, we just get caught in the fear. And we're just terrified. We're afraid. This is different. This is knowing fear. What helps is if you've practiced for a while, and perhaps a reflection from time to time, is understanding that each one of us is much more than the fear. Much. I mean, each one, is, each one of us is much more than any of these states that come along. But when they come, for the time being, it feels as if this is what our whole world is and always will be. It's an illusion. Fear is there, and while it's there, it's as if it's you, but it leaves. And in a sense, in back of it is only infinity, merely infinity. Or is a, a degree of consciousness that is great depth in all of us. Okay, so that the awareness meets the fear. Now, the purpose of the conscious breathing is to help nourish the awareness, the mindfulness, to help keep it steady. In some ways, it's also like a friend. That is, it accompanies you. It accompanies the mindfulness as you observe something that might be not so easy to look at, like, like anger, like fear, whatever. Because the breath is kind of soothing, especially when... It, it gets to a certain point. And so the breathing accompanies the mindfulness and the suffering that comes about because of anger or fear is taken care of. Now, what happens is that the mindfulness itself, even though you're not trying to do anything, mindfulness transforms the energy of the fear, the energy of the anger, or whatever else you want to tell me, resentment, disappointment. The mindfulness is, transforms it into a different energy. You could call some of it the energy of understanding. Because as you go deeper into it, you begin to understand what fear is. You begin to understand what anger is. But it's not... So, we already have volumes written on it. It's not the verbal descriptions or great analytic insights. But this is a direct seeing into the nature of what is fear. You may not even be able to put it into words. Or when you do, it might sound like, well, I always knew that. But it's not the words. To do my best, some of the things that get seen, you may see on a psychological level the causes for it, quite spontaneously. Understand, oh, sure. But one thing, and this is where the work of wisdom begins, 
especially as you get more and more able to stay with anger and fear and so forth in a sustained way. And you have some samadhi, which we're developing using that one, using the breath exclusively. That's one of the main ways to do it. <coughs> so the day comes when you can be with the fear. You can stick with it. You don't keep sliding off it, running away from it, repressing it, trying to diminish it, try to add to it, whatever. Just letting it be, much as you've been do- learning to do with the breath. And as you enter into it more deeply, you begin to see what it is. You see that it isn't really solid, that it lacks a core, that it is not enduring, that it's something that it arises because of certain conditions, certain causes and conditions happen, the fear arises, it operates for a certain period of time, and even during that period of time is changing a lot, And then it sort of runs out of energy and dissipates itself, and it's gone, followed by the next mental state, the next mood or state, relief. Well, you see that once and twice, and you can see it in deeper and deeper ways. I have to use the same words, but the seeing is deeper. And as you begin to see that, the whole nature of what fear is changes. It takes the energy out of it. The starch is taken right out of it. You're not trying to do that. But all that energy that's been held captive in the fear, largely because of our ignorance of the nature of the fear, you could say entirely because of the ignorance, we begin to see what it is. It's a natural phenomenon. There is fear, rather than, and here's of course one of the key things, the key thing to learn. When the fear is there, we tend to appropriate it. This fear is me. This is my fear. I am terrified. I'm afraid. And these are all the building blocks that the ego, the, the sense of a solid self, uses to, to maintain that illusion. And so more and more you see that not only does fear arise, and because it arises, it, it passes away. It's a passing show. It isn't so solid, but it also lacks self. Now, as you more and more are able to, to see that, what tends to happen is letting go. The letting go happens because in understanding its nature, there's an intelligence at work which now makes it more and more difficult for you to get attached and hold on to it. Attachment here means also pushing it away. And very, fairly early on, as you get to, be, to learn to remember to do this, even if it's done in a shaky way, kind of skitterish, and you don't have super-duper samadhi and all, but you know, you're in there and you more and more understand that there is value in looking at things rather than spending the rest of our life constantly running away, making up stories, avoiding, and so forth, that there is, finally, there's no substitute for saying hello to these things, to getting to know them. What I think everyone in this room can experience is that the ability to use this process to take some of the ache out of attachment. I have no doubt about that. Now, the degree to which you practice and the practice unfolds, that's, you know, I don't know in whose hands it is, but it's certainly not in mine, or in what hands it is, it's in. But it's clear that in the Buddhist way of formulating things, suffering the kind of suffering that comes from a lack of understanding, of misknowledge, that's due to attachment. We have craving and attachment, and we get hurt over and over and over again. 
And the practice is about letting go. It's about looking into the nature of why we do that, seeing why, the, the, why we get so attached, why we crave, why we think that that is going to make us happy in the face of evidence that doesn't seem to suggest that at all, quite the contrary. And so the range can be from at least taking some of the ache out of attachment to complete freedom, to where it's not that you don't do the things of the world. It's not like, well, now you never have a relationship, you don't use money, you never eat, you don't have a house, you don't have a car because you don't want to be attached. That itself, of course, can be an attachment. The, uh, Narayan and I studied with a, quite an extraordinary Thai teacher named Ajahn Mahabua. And, uh, you know, in Theravadan Buddhism, as some of you know, there's just endless descriptions of how suffering in life and, you know, it's short and you, sickness, old age and death. And, you know, it's a pretty bleak picture. But, of course, the positive side is nirvana, which sounds like it's something, you know, beyond cloud seven. But he says often in his talks, in his writings, that there's nothing wrong with planet Earth. Planet Earth's a great place. In other words, after you're done with all the kalesas, all the greed, hatred, and delusion, it's a beautiful place. Everything that's going on, the suffering isn't because of planet Earth. The suffering is because of the way we relate to planet Earth. Planet Earth meaning us, too. All beings. It's actually quite a beautiful place. Now, some of you in your own way, I know in interviews, in meditation and certainly on retreat, you get glimpses of that. It's how the simplest things become so moving. You know, a leaf blowing or just sipping a cup of, t- a cup of tea. Very ordinary things in the, in the midst of practice. If you haven't experienced it, don't feel it, you know. <laughs> Don't run out and get a tea and a leaf. And, <laughs> There's a lot of happiness around, you know, a lot of, all over the place and all kinds of simple things. Having water when we're thirsty, having a bed tonight when we're tired. So many things that we don't, we take for granted. But if we don't mess it up with the attachment then it turns out it's not all that bad. Now, what I'm saying is that we can begin to get a a real glimpse of that long before full enlightenment. Mahabhuva is said to be an arhant, which is beyond the whole thing. But long before that, you can take some of the ache out of attachment. If you're in, I can hear some of you thinking, what about relationship? That's always the question. I wish I were Burmese, you know, because then it would be so simple to not try and take that question, answer it in a way that's appropriate in the West. But Mahasi Sayadaw, when, when he was here many years ago, uh, he's a very, was, he's dead, another one. <laughs> he tried to figure this out. I think what it is is these people never die to us, you know, so like Mahasi Sayadaw never died. Because, you know, the teaching's still working and, you know, the, there's this picture in, you know, around, you see that. But he is, his physical body is definitely dead. But he gave a retreat here and, you know, he's very dignified, very uh, erudite, scholarly, but also a great yogi and great teacher. And uh, 
very serious, very monastic in a certain way, austere. And the questions would be, my girlfriend and I, she's having an affair with someone else, but I was thinking, that could I also go out with other, you know, and he'd, he'd sit there and like, uh, more sitting is called for. And you have all these new age questions, you know, about relationship and, you know, homosexuality, this, you know, everything. More sitting is called for. You know, I wish I could get away with that. <laughs> I know you'd never let you'd never let us do that. Okay. So what about if there's relationship? You know, obviously when we're in love, isn't there just attachment? It's just sort of like glue and paste and cement. We're just holding on to each other for dear life. I mean, that's what we think love is. How can there be a human relationship? Is it possible? Are there any human beings who really love each other and they're just so free and you know, oh yeah, you want to you do it and I'll do what I want? What I'm saying is, maybe and maybe not, but definitely the practice can and there are people doing it. You can apply it and it takes a lot of the... You start to see that this intensive holding on and, it, and uh, aversion that goes on in relationship, it's such suffering. It doesn't mean you have to end the relationship, but it has to sort of be, um, to put it mildly, refurbished from within. You know, you have to change the way we relate to each other and, and notice the many ways in which we imprison one another when we, when we become, when we come together. And the awareness with the breathing uh, can begin to see those moments when we're suffering. Usually, check, see if this is true. If you're suffering, it's usually something you're attached to, something you're pushing away, something you're holding on to. Okay, uh, I think we better conclude um, just to make sure that we're all clear on the practice. That might be an instance. The Ryan's in another planet, okay. (laughs) I might go a little longer. The walking will be a little shorter today. You probably all applaud. <laughs> so while you're being with the breathing, things come up. Now it's not necessarily going to be always suffering, hardly. It could be anything. It could be the sound of a bird chirping. Breathing in, I hear the chirp, chirp. Breathing out, chirp, chirp. <laughs> breathing, whatever it is, you know. Uh, different sensations in the body, uh, the smell of food, uh, images passing through the mind, some frightening, some neutral, some quite delightful. Seeing them every, But all of them, seeing them arise and pass away, arise and pass away. Just the flow and the breathing itself, coming and going, everything coming and going. And it's just a handing yourself over to that rhythm and getting caught a lot. When we get caught, we're trying to make things be a certain way or not be a certain way. Seeing that is a letting go, an easing. The phenomena, start, the phenomena starts again. And so what turns up from moment to moment, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen in my own mind. And so some of that is to get comfortable with not having an agenda. We're just breathing consciously and learning slowly and gradually how to be with whatever's there. Some of it you'll be happy to have and others not so happy to have. And the practice is learning how to do that. You're not going to be able to do it immediately. 
And if you find during a given, let's say, period of time while you're with the breathing, you're centered in the breathing, and you're also experiencing other things, that you're really losing focus, that you are getting quite caught up in things, pushing away, holding on, you're not really mindful. A good rule of thumb, go back to the original practice, just the simple breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out. Maybe for the rest of the sitting, maybe for just two or three breaths, you'll know. If you feel steady again, then if you wish, then open it up. And, it, and eventually what the rhythm is, you start to learn it's artful. I can't give you a, you know, I, we can't bureaucratize it, fortunately. And that's part of the, the fun of it, is that it's, you know, you just jump into the unknown. Just allow consciousness to express itself. There's some surprises for all of us. It keeps being that way. And when we are able to do that, we do it. And when we find that it's become a bit of a problem, coming back to the, to the simple breath and learning that rhythm of when to just breathe and when to open up so that the breathing includes the non-breathing. Okay. We have a moment's silence, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.